was 21 years ago this week that 19 al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked commercial airplanes and crashed them into the World Trade Towers in the Pentagon, killing nearly 3,000 Americans. That murderous act prompted the U.S. government to invade Afghanistan, where Taliban rulers were protecting Osama bin Laden and other al-Qaeda leaders. It was the start of the country's longest war, stretching over two decades, only to end disastrously last August when President Biden pulled out all U.S. troops and the Taliban retook control of the country. For most Americans, Afghanistan is a country that evokes vague, unpleasant memories that are fast being forgotten. But a new podcast, Kabul Falling, reminds us that for millions of Afghans, the U.S. withdrawal was only the start of a horrific nightmare as Taliban fighters went house to house searching for American collaborators, while Taliban leaders methodically stripped the country's women of all their rights and barring them from attending school. We'll talk to the host of Kabul Falling, Nelifer Hadayat, an Afghan refugee herself, as well as the podcast's executive producer, former Wall Street Journal reporter Bradley Hope, to discuss what they discovered in the aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal and what it portends to the future on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Hiskoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So I think, you know, for a lot of us, when we pulled out Last August, we all watched the images uh, at the Kabul airport and Afghans desperately trying to get inside the perimeter so they could leave the country and um, American military doing what they can, but then abandoning the entire place. It's as though we kind of washed our hands of it. And, you know, we did on this podcast last month, we had Elliot Ackerman on to talk about the one year anniversary. But so much has happened since then on the world stage, you know, most prominently the war in Ukraine that, you know, Afghanistan is almost, as I said, completely being forgotten, but it's a really harsh reality for uh, the Afghan people who are living under this really draconian Taliban rule. And um, it's well worth hearing from these two reporters who did a pretty masterful job of documenting what's been going on since we left a little over a year ago. Yeah, it's it's so important to tell the human dimension of this story. You know, this policy failure has real consequences for a lot of people. And, you know, it's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's important to acknowledge what is happening to that country and to the, you know, people who have suffered there for so long and continue to suffer. But it's also important for policymakers to hear these stories and to continue to confront them with them so that, you know, because why? Because we make the same mistake. You mentioned Vietnam. You know, we make this mistake over and over again. And uh, I think it's our job to make sure that people have to continue to hear these uh, these stories. And this is also a an uplifting story, and it's a story of real heroism on the part of not just the Afghan people, but also a lot of individuals out there who went to great lengths to actually, not governments for the most part, but individuals who went to great lengths to rescue some of these people, not enough, but a significant uh, number of them. And it's a reminder 
that the stories in the podcast are, are really heroic. I mean, it's, it, it is incredible what these people did to save their families and to get out of Afghanistan, those lucky ones who, who did. And it's a reminder that, you know, when people live in these really extreme, dangerous situations, well, the only people who actually get out of these situations survive are the ones who do things that are heroic. You know, life in extremity is very challenging. And it reminded me a little bit, actually, of, you know, you know, the people who survive, you know, horrible genocides, the Holocaust, you hear those stories, and they're always extraordinary stories because the challenges are so great as to be almost insurmountable. This is going to be an odd thing to say about a podcast, but it, it was a podcast that actually has a cinematic quality to it. Totally. Um, you almost kind of can feel and hear and smell the intensity of the lives of the people that are being narrated and discussed in the in the podcast. And to go back to, Mike, your point about us, you know, kind of essentially in the last year attempting to memory hole Afghanistan, which is almost exactly what we've tried to do. And more than anything that I've read or listened to in the last year, this is a podcast that that brought me out of that memory hole and that kind of reignites a, a kind of an understanding and awareness of what is now our country's 21 years worth of engagement in that country and with those people. And as we're coming to the anniversary of 9-11, a reminder that for better or worse, the consequences of that act are being felt as intensely in Afghanistan today as they're being felt in the United States. I will add that despite our effort to memory hold this, I feel confident in being able to predict that should the Republicans take control of the House next year, we're going to be treated to an endless stream of hearings investigating the failures of the Biden administration in withdrawing from Afghanistan. And in terms of kind of measuring the consequences of that failure, uh, excerpts from this podcast would probably be uh, yeah. exactly. I, I, I have to say, compared to some of the other things they are likely to be investigating, this one actually matters and is worth investigating because, you know, there's a lot we don't know about the decision making process that led to the U.S. withdrawal. Um, there was an interview that General McKenzie, who was the head of Central Command, did recently saying quite explicitly how he was urging, you know, a residual force of U.S. troops to stay in Afghanistan, something that was not entirely clear when the White House was announcing uh, the withdrawal. So there's clearly a lot to be there. I want to say just two other quick points. One is, and this we're going to touch on this in our conversation about this podcast, but there's a real moral dilemma for the U.S. government right now about how to deal with the Taliban. You have a, you know, just this absolutely disastrous humanitarian situation in Afghanistan now where people are literally starving. Millions of children are, you know, not getting the nutrition they need. But in order to get aid, you have to deal with the government that's there, which is, uh, you know, which for all the sort of, you know, imaging that they did in the build up to the U.S. withdrawal, a run up to the U.S. withdrawal, it's pretty clear they are no more moderate today than they were when they were in power more than 20 years ago. They are just as harsh. They are just as strict. They are imposing, you know, Sharia law to the maximum degree on a country that was used to, for you know, millions of Afghan women, having equal rights, uh, serving in government, 
being on uh, journalists on TV, uh, serving in all facets of society. And now all that's been. Uh, but I still stricken. think that some level of engagement is required. I, I don't see how you can completely isolate the government that's there and continue with, you know, harsh sanctions um, and just marginalize them without any hope of some progress there. I, I just don't see that that working. But it is a huge dilemma. Also, let's not forget, in addition to the catalog of awfulness of the Taliban, let's not also miss that they are once again becoming a haven for other terrorist organizations. And that just last month, the United States killed an al-Qaeda leader who had found refuge in the country. In downtown Kabul. In, <laughs> right. in downtown yeah. Kabul. <laughs> right. um, you know, which is, which is you know, kind of obviously putting to the, the test uh, the Biden administration's argument that they would be able to kind of over the horizon uh, protect uh, protect us over, over the, the horizon. horizon well it worked in that instance but it worked know, then I, but but there are plenty of times as we all know it hasn't worked uh, the other only other point i was going to make is uh the host of this podcast who we're going to talk to in a moment uh nalifar hadayat is an incredibly compelling woman and afghan refugee herself who has some really strong comments to make about all this so let's get to it Okay, we now have with us Nelifar Hadayat, the host of the new podcast, Cobble Falling, as well as Bradley Hope, the executive producer of the podcast. Nelifar and Bradley, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Really engrossing podcast, a lot to talk about. I mean, what struck me about it is... We all remember the days in August of last year when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan and all the disasters in that process. But especially in the later episodes, you focus on what happened after the U.S. pulled out and the Taliban took control. So tell us a little bit, Nofar, about what you found about the Taliban's seizing control and what impact that had on ordinary Afghans. I'll just start by reminding everyone that the Taliban weren't ever out of control in Afghanistan. It may have been that they were no longer leading the charge to forge a new future for this beleaguered country that's been in multiple civil wars, multiple occupations from the Russians to the Americans, and everyone's tried to stick an oar in. Afghanistan is often called the graveyard of empire. And it's known that for a reason, because we're quite a um, hardened group of people, Afghans. But it's important to remember that the Taliban have always terrorized Afghans. And whether people like it or not, they've had an influence, not only because of the culture that they come with and they permeate every facet of Afghan life, whether it's the opium fields or how to look after and nurture children in schools and madrasas, all the way through to where women should and shouldn't be. They've always had a say. But when they entered Kabul, I remember it very vividly because it was a day that I died in a way. You know, a part of me will never be able to get over the fact that my homeland, where I was born, my birthland, is forever out of reach now. Afghanistan, in a sense, exists on a map, but no longer as a, as a place. 
um, in my memory or in my heart. So bereavement was what I experienced and what my family went through. We it was it was like losing somebody. And in the months that followed, and what we do in Kabul Falling and the genius of Bradley and Team Brazen is sticking with it, right? Often the greatest stories as a journalist, which is what I am, come from just staying there and being there. And we managed to speak to real Afghans who were caught up in this unspeakable choice between home and, you know, nothingness, um, staying put and risking everything or going forward and trying to find a better tomorrow. So it's it's a wonderful project um, and I'm, I'm deeply impressed by, by the team, but I'm also really glad to get Afghan voices on there, right? It's wonderful, but also terribly sad. And I, particularly the more recent episodes about how various Afghans who were connected to the Afghan government, uh, uh, Jawad, who was like the assistant to his brother who was in the Afghan parliament, and what happened to him after the Taliban took over. We were all, as I said before, focused on what happened in August when the US pulled out, but it's in September, the next month, a year ago today, that the Taliban went after people like him. Indeed. I'll let Bradley take that one, but I I know how I feel about it. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's just one of those cases where there was obviously the public facing messaging of the Taliban. They they learned a lot in the last 20 years about how you how you message publicly around the world. And so they when when they first came to power, they said a lot of the right things like, you know, we're going to we're going to run a representative government and we're going to there's room for women and there's room for minorities, but the experience on the ground has been nothing like that. And and it's actually increasingly hard to even learn those stories because a lot of the media has left Afghanistan in general. And um, and on, on top of that, it's harder to work there as a journalist too. So actually, in, in some ways, uh, I wish I could tell you about the people that we interviewed, but in the end, we couldn't include them because it was too dangerous for them to be identified, even if we anonymized their voices. They really had, a, you know, they wanted to tell their story and what they were experiencing, but they they didn't feel safe in the end. And there's a lot of people that are kind of living in safe houses, moving from building to building. And we spoke to some of those people and and essentially they can't get out. They have no, there's no mechanism to get out. It's not like it was in the in the chaos of the first few weeks of, of the fall of Kabul. And so they're just sort of hoping to find a way out. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of um, people around the world who still can't sleep because of of the worry they have for people they know in Afghanistan, you know, we talked to a lot of people that were involved in the rescues. There's people like Nelifer as well, who who just feel the you know the, the power of of this, and um, it's keeping a lot of people up at night still. And, and part of it is knowing the stories of these people who can't get out. There's literally no way to get them out. I actually wanted to pick up on that very point. Notwithstanding these terribly sad and and tragic stories, there was also an uplifting side to uh, this uh, story that you tell. And um, part of it is about the resilience of the Afghan people that you interview. Part of it is how intrepid they are about finding ways to get out and get their families out. Um, And part of it is about the people who help them, the non-Afghan people, not enough and not enough governments, but individuals who, who help them. So and I think the, the story of Javed personifies the tragic side, but also the uplifting side. I mean, how they were able to get passports, for example, 
is just a fascinating, incredibly compelling story. So tell us a little bit about that. Give us that flavor. And not even all the passports he needed. He walked away with some of the passports. I think what's really important and, and what we managed to get across in Kabul Falling is the epic odyssey that each one of these folks takes. I mean, we're talking about Homeric efforts. You're talking about years of systemic oppression and people being forced and honed and tuned in to the minutiae of someone's behavior. Does that person look like a Tolib? How are they carrying that Kalashnikov? Why are they looking at me that way? How do I need to dress to be unassuming? How do I walk so that I don't look like a Westerner? These are all things that the people, Jawid uh, and others in, in um, uh, Ogai, others, so many other characters, so many brave people have to think about. I myself fled Afghanistan when I was just, I was incredibly young. My mum likes to say we, we fled more than once. So, you, you know, which time do you mean? Which, which particular occasion? Because I've gone back and forth with Pakistan and, and Afghanistan um, as we were trying to get away. But my memory is as a young person being acutely aware of my mother's mood and facial expressions. And I'm three, right? So imagine as a young woman, what Ogai is going through, what Fortama is going through, what Jawid is going through. To speak specifically of the tasks, these Homeric absolute efforts, to your point, Dan, none of it could have been achieved without Dana, without our CIA uh, uh, friend in the US, without so many foreigners who, in my mind, should have better things to do, but they chose to do this. And that upliftingness that you're talking about is something I feel throughout the podcast. This isn't about just the immense sorrow and the indignity of what's happening to Afghan people. It's also about the sheer resilience. And you know, one of the things, um, one of my pet peeves is when people call me strong. You're so strong, well done, you're so strong. You survived that, you went through that. I shouldn't have to be strong. Shouldn't have to, as a former refugee, carry this with me. But I will, and that resilience permeates every single person we spoke to. Cobble falling is as much about the highs and those moments of triumph and the tenacity of all of these beautiful people as it is about the lows and the indignity that they face. So uh, one of the things you said when you, when you first started speaking really grabbed my attention, which was that the Taliban has never been out of power in Afghanistan, that it remains. And the Taliban remain a kind of a presence, obviously, throughout the podcast, yet they're not monolithic. It's not a singular force. How has the Taliban changed in the year since they took over Kabul and definitively grabbed power in Afghanistan? I mean, we're lucky because in Kabul falling, um, Project Brazen and me and the team, we, we, we spoke to a young Taliban uh, member. So folks can listen to it in their own words. Far be it from me to try and get into the mindset of a person that um, despises everything I am and thinks that I don't deserve to live, right? For me to be able to really get into the mind of a person who calls themselves a Taliban, I would have to accept that they would kill me in a moment's notice, that I am to them an aberration, a mistake by God, you know, that's the level we're talking about. The Taliban are fanatical about one thing, power. 
there are no women in the Taliban. It's a purely male organization, hierarchical, structured, well-organized. And whether they were fighting a guerrilla war against ISAF and American and British forces, or whether they are the purported leaders of a nation in the form of the Islamic Republic that they are, the Emirates, the Islamic Emirates that they are now, they've always known how to control, coerce, and get what they want out of a group of people. So how have they adapted in this new reality where the international community, whether they like it or not, must engage with the Taliban for the sake of the Afghan people that they have abandoned? And it's very hard for me not to get emotional or allow my personal views to seep into this bit. But we, as the Western world, turned our backs on the people and we gave the keys to the city to the people who a year ago we pointed at and said, terrorist, terrorist. It's what we did. The onus, the burden and the responsibility lies with the Western world to engage with the Taliban. But what are they engaging with? Well, If you follow the Taliban spokesperson, as I do on Twitter, you get a sense of their priorities, and that's to accumulate, hold, and exert power in every way. They're not going to talk about the fact that young Afghan women are isolated, self-immolating, tortured, um, and left to rot in corners all across Afghanistan in the houses. They're not going to talk about mothers who are forced to sell their children because they can't afford to feed them. They're not going to talk about the famine or the the ISIS attacks that continue in the country. They're not gonna talk about an incredibly harsh winter that took many lives that has just gone, and another one that they're walking into. What they're going to talk about is the brotherhood and the fraternity, and the fact that whether we like it or not, they beat the Americans, didn't they? They held out and they won. So that level of vigor, that level of excitement, they can ride that way for years to come, uh, Victoria. Given how strongly you feel about this, as you look back, what is your view about the United States' decision to pull out in August of last year? It was the wrong decision. It was a selfish decision. And we will see if America has to pay the price. Because we have not defeated those that wish to do us harm in the Western world. But was there a path to... Victory seems preposterous under under these circumstances, but was there a path for the United States to achieve its purpose in Afghanistan? Sure, there was a path, but America chose a cliff and they jumped off of it. What was The, the path? The path was simple to find a process. We've done this before in Rwanda. We've done this before in Yugoslavia. We've done this. The global community has been there and monitored and managed genocide and atrocities. We've done it in Sarajevo. This is not an unknown occurrence where disenfranchised, militarized group of people like the Taliban are brought in and forced to engage with and react to the general population. What America did, I should be clear, what the politicians and the policymakers of America did specifically, is they chose no path. They chose to jump off a cliff and hope for the best. And that's, as a person, as a citizen of the world, that's unforgivable. There was no pathway, there was a deadline. There was no structure and international cooperation or a pathway to peace. There was, this is what we're going to do. We're going to try and get as many of you out 
whether you deserve it or not, whether we want to or not. And for the rest of you, we're going to shut our eyes until we can be bothered to look at you again. So of course there are pathways and, and people far smarter than me um, can get around a room and try and figure that out. And in fact, that is what the Afghan people call for. It is what the diaspora call for. It's what people in the region call for, but it's not what Afghanistan's getting. I don't know about you, Michael, but I haven't heard about America talking about how we're going to re-engage Afghan people back into a government that they handed to the Taliban. What I'm hearing is quite a lot of sort of self-hatred, maybe resentment, certainly feelings of sadness for a group of people that are now destitute and left to be ruled by a group that we designated terrorists. So just to follow up here, given the humanitarian disaster of Afghanistan right now, the lack of food, the uh, starvation that Afghans are facing, should the United States be engaging with the Taliban since they're the only people to engage with in Afghanistan right now? That's a very fascinating point, but no contact is a form of engagement. Not talking to the Taliban is a form of engagement. Ignoring the needs of the Afghan people is a form of engagement. It's just neglect, right? So whether we like it or not, the United States is bonded to the outcome of what happens in Afghanistan. Whether the, the people of America, which I haven't spoken about yet, want to or not, their future is bound to the future of Afghanistan. And that, that's, that's unavoidable. What is clear is that the way that America is engaging is, un, is, is unhelpful at the moment. What should the United one, States do? I want to make one, one clear example of this. So we know that the Afghan assets, that the, the reserves that the US holds of Afghan wealth that, that they believe belongs to the government has been sanctioned. It's been removed from that account and half of that sovereign wealth or that or that all those assets has been given to the 9-11 fund the september the 11th fund and the other half has been kept for afghan people until such a time as that can be dispersed fairly now first of all no afghan has been consulted in this second of all i don't understand what afghanistan 2022 has to do with 9-11 this only this is a link only in the mind of americans not in the outcome for Afghans. So if we were a fair and impartial group, we might say, shouldn't America be using all of that money to aid, whether it's by food, assistance in civil society, or oh my goodness, just getting the refugees out of there in some way to help the Afghan people. And the truth is that's not what's happening. So I get the feeling that the US government, the powers that be in America, are doing something that most conscientious Americans would disagree with. And I think that's the uneasy that I'm feeling on this call with the three or four of you. It's that sense of, we want to be doing the right thing, Americans are saying, but we're not finding that that's translating on the ground. I want to go back to, if I can, to the, the podcast. And it's an epic accomplishment. And it's it, you had access to uh, an extraordinary range of people. Tell us more about when you began this podcast and how you managed to interview and get access to the, the, the range of people that you managed to. Yeah, I think the idea kind of 
uh, came about right after the fall of Kabul. I was inspired by, there's an old book called The Bridge of San Luis Rey by Thornton Wilder. And it's, it's, it was the first book to really try to take a true story and look at it from all the perspectives of the people. It's about a bridge that collapses essentially and all the people's lives who are affected by that collapse. So I had it in my mind that we wanted to do something in the same way in, the, in a podcast. And um, we actually just started off in the most simplest way. We just, we had a few contacts. We, we interviewed those people, you know, the people that had something interesting to say. And we just did the Larry Wright thing. At the end of every interview, we asked, who else should we talk to? And then we just kept going and going and going. And then we ended up creating, we ended up, ended up entering, interviewing probably more than 40 people. And then in the actual podcast, we didn't, we weren't able to use as many of those people, but we tried to find a way to still use a lot of that material on our website, which is kind of a quite involved website, kabulfalling.com. Um, so, and then, and then along the way, we just, and it, there was a lot of things that just felt right that happened. So um, obviously we got introduced to Nelifer, which was really important. And then we also found um, this young Afghan composer called Arsen Fahim, who um, actually has an amazing life story. He was a, um, an orphan, an Afghan orphan living in Pakistan. And he watched somehow or another, the movie, The Pianist on like a, a pirated copy and became just entranced by music and by the piano. And he he managed to find his way from there to Boston. Now he's a student in Boston and he's a brilliant composer. And so he composed the score. So, and we just kept looking for ways to double down on the Afghan forward nature of the project. You know, so, you know, we we found these women in Kandahar, they, they kind of embroidered what became our cover art. It's an original embroidery. And not as like a, a some kind of a stunt, but more just to, really emphasize that if you look at the an experience through the eyes of the true participants, you, it will open your eyes, you know? And, and actually, um, I had a real epiphany. Um, I live in London, but I, was, I flew through Dallas recently. And I noticed as I went into the security area that there was all of the greeters in the passport area were Afghans. I, I instantly could tell, you know, that, that, that they were Afghans. And, um, and I was thinking to myself, everyone's just walking by these guys, but you, you have no idea what they've been through. Maybe they were in Afghanistan one year ago, and now they're here in Dallas greeting you at the airport, and you have no idea what they've been through. It's, and they've been through something that almost is reminiscent of, of things that we watch in movies about World War II and places like that. You know, And so that was always our idea, is, is to tell it from the perspective. And, and another thing interesting, a lot of the people that, that were involved in rescuing, they themselves said, I was on, I was on WhatsApp. They, these guys were on the ground making calls every moment and, and trying to figure it out. And they're the ones that their lives were at risk. They were getting messages on WhatsApp, okay, turn left, turn right. And they were feeling a bit nervous, you know, but um, so that's something I felt, you know, I felt very strongly about listening to the Afghan perspective on this. It's important to hear Bradley talk a little bit about the, the makeup of the team and the cast and the fact that half of it is Afghan, majority of it is women. I'd love to hear Bradley speak about that. Yeah, I mean, the the entire team that worked on this project, um, there's a lot of Afghans involved. We had a, a, a producer who was Afghan, obviously the composer, Nelifer. We had people in Afghanistan. We had we had people making calls around the world. You know, a lot of it was done remotely because a lot of people are in places like this humanitarian village in Abu Dhabi. You know, and it was sometimes the interviews were really difficult to do because of the reception and stuff like that. So, yeah, so it was important for us to try to you know, bring that perspective in. We have lots of translators who are working on the project as well. And, and everyone had, everyone contributed something from their own experience that really made it that tapestry effect, you know? 
So, you know, at the end of the day, what's so compelling about this podcast is the stories and the storytelling. And they're so memorable. They are so emotional. Just as we wind wind down here, I would love for the two of you, let's say starting with uh, Bradley uh, and then Nellifer, just to tell us your favorite stories. Uh, one story from each of you that, that uh, I know you, you have many of them, it's hard to choose, that you still think about now time has passed since you've actually uh, put together this podcast. What stays with you in particular for the benefit of our listeners? Well, for me, it's hard to say. I've got a lot of favorites, but the one that really sticks with me is the one that just feels like the sheer human desire to make it work is the only reason this thing succeeded. And that's the story of Donna and then the the robotics team women, the cyclists. Everything about that should have failed. You know, she was a freelance journalist who had once written an article about this robotics team, but something snapped in her that she had to do something for just initially a very small group of women. And then it just started ballooning and ballooning. And then her, her kind of network, she dragged everyone in, like almost like, you know, just pulled them all in. And, and every single person was, was kind of electrified by being connected to that network. And they were using every connection they had, you know? And so obviously just getting to the border was a whole journey, but then the, getting the passports, getting the, the president of Tajikistan by accessing his wife's jeweler, and explain the passports, because they managed to get a significant number of passports through a contact that she had at the embassy, at the Afghan embassy in Moscow, who was not a member of the Taliban. He was essentially the outgoing ambassador. We still had the keys, you know, so he went in there and he made these actually pretty bad passports. <laughs> they were not, there was like misspellings and the photos were a little wonky and stuff, but they were genuine Afghan passports. And, and even, so that was amazing how that, how they were made, but then getting those passports into Afghanistan is a whole other challenge. You know, like you're trying to get people out of Afghanistan. Nobody's thinking about how you get passports into Afghanistan, you know? And uh, so, and, and I really love that story because also we talk to people from many different perspectives of that story. So obviously you have Dana, we have the, the, the young women as well. We also have this journalist in Tajikistan who was kind of there as they arrived. And she, she did this beautiful recording of them all singing the song on the bus. And when you hear the translation, you know the story of that that song. It's way more powerful, you know. So I, that was my favorite one, I think. It's uh, and Ita's recording is just um, it's a it's a beautiful moment because I remember my mom singing that song. The song's about freedom and sovereignty and nationhood and um, you know a band of people that make a nation, right? I mean, listen, I don't want to get all philosophical, but what what is a country if not an agreement between a bunch of people that they're going to get on? Afghanistan hasn't had that for so long that that these songs, these relics are important to our culture. And whether you're part of the diaspora or not, it really, really resonates. And I think that's just to feed off that, Bradley, that one of my favorite moments is we speak to a New York Times journalist called Fatima. And she, um, as she was leaving her house, in this mad rush to get to an airport and 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 try and save her life because I you know very much doubt that she would survive very long in Afghanistan being a reporter for the New York Times. She turns around with a little backpack and she takes a photo of her house just as it is, just just the house, the living room, to remember what she's leaving behind. And I wish so much that I had something like that, that I had a photo of my home 
in Afghanistan, that I had something to look at and remember home. Um, I don't even have memories of what home was. So to me, I'm almost jealous in a way of her foresight and her ability to know the importance, the gravity of what she was doing and going through. And it's, I can't, I, I, we had to record that about five times because I kept crying. Oh, I'm breaking down. We had to record a lot of it very slowly because of the number of times I broke down crying, but there you are. And, and also, um, she also had a backpack where she chose very specific objects that she wanted to bring with her. And then unfortunately she lost the backpack in the airport. But but I love to hear the detail of what she chose. You know, what do you, and it, it's kind of an interesting question. And we did that with our trailer. What would you do if you had to run from your country? What, what would you bring, you know? And that's kind of how we tried to do the trailer to kind of connect with people. This isn't just like a story about them over there. You know, this is a story that, all humans could have experienced at some point in history. You know, it's a universal story for us. It is indeed. And it is pretty remarkable that the United States was engaged in Afghanistan for 20 years, two full decades. And now it's off the front pages and forgotten by a lot of Americans, unfortunately. But um, your podcast is a reminder of the aftermath of uh, the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. And it's an important one. Lafer, Bradley, I want to thank you. The podcast is Kabul Falling, and it's well worth everybody listening. Thanks a lot. Thank, thank you. you.